Bad on Bears fans, another edition of the Chicago Bears podcast is here. Pat, the designer, Courtney Cronin in the building, looking at what we've seen, what we've added, all the issues that the Chicago Bears have right now. And are there some bright spots possibly moving forward? It doesn't feel like it right now, but maybe there's something in there, right? I mean, yeah, it could be worse. We're not Vegas, I guess. Are we Vegas? I don't know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we got to talk about all the different scenarios with Justin uh, let's look at some possible solutions that we can find to this offensive line on this team. Phil Snow's here. Exactly. And then uh, some of our favorite stories from the NFL thus far this season. All that and more on today's episode of the Chicago Bears podcast. Hit that like button. Subscribe to the page. Leave that five-star review. You know what to do. And drop a bird down in the comments below. Every like, every comment helps the channel grow. Oh, I'm spitting bars today. Courtney, what's good? I'm good. How are you doing? I am. Uh, I'm. I'm just trying to make sure that my energy is high because the Bears' energy is very, very low coming into this week. Yeah, I mean it's the one in five, and I think as we get closer to the 31st with the trade deadline, the conversations about what this team, the direction it's headed, but also like what it's going to look like in a couple of weeks, and knowing that Justin Fields right now has this thumb injury, and it's still like pretty vague as far as how much time he's going to miss. There's a lot of uncertainty keeping us on our toes when it comes to the Chicago Bears. Let's let's start here, right? Because uh, I, I don't know if Matt Eberflus is just he doesn't like talking to us or telling us. Like, I don't know if he thinks that he's keeping, you know, government secrets locked up behind here. But what is the latest on Justin Fields thumb? Clearly, he's going to miss next week. But we're talking about a dislocated thumb. We don't we won't know more until swelling goes down, I guess. But. It's a dislocated thumb, right? Even if you pop it back in place, it's going to take a while for the strength to return to that. Right. And that's why he kept mentioning grip strength on Monday is like the determining factor of what fields can do when he's able to actually grip the, like how, how long this thing's going to take, how many weeks yeah. he's going to be on ice. I know that they are listing him as doubtful right now, but the more I've researched this, like I know it seems like a complete cop out and the inevitable feeling around this team is that he's not playing against the Raiders. First off, even if miraculously the swelling went down after 24 to 48 hours, which is that period of time, typically after a dislocate, uh, after a thumb dislocation where, you know, things could drastically change. It doesn't yeah. seem realistic here. If they taped it up, like all of those things, even if like the best case scenario played out here, the risk of re-injury, the risk of him not being able to grip the ball and throw the ball properly, that's a real concern for the Bears. Yeah. And Eberflus wants to keep everything really close to the vest. I'm not entirely sure the competitive advantage you get from not talking about what great of a, of a, a dislocation it is, yeah. all of those things. But that's his prerogative. As a head coach, some head coaches want to, are willing to talk about injuries and be forthright about it. Others don't want anything to do with that. Clearly, he's the latter. It's not the first coach that I've been around, at least, that has treated injuries that way. But I think they've really got a plan for a longer-term thing here than just he's going to miss the Raiders game. And again, unless you've seen the MRI, which none of us have, you have no clue what's going on there as far as how, how much damage there is. Because you know he dislocates his thumb on his throwing hand. He pops it back in. There's going to be some damage there, whether it's surgically required for him to get it surgically repaired or not. So I would not be surprised if by this weekend they determine, hey, a four-week IR stint might be the best case for you just to get healthy. If you can avoid yeah. surgery, that's awesome. But even if you avoid surgery, it doesn't mean, oh, you're back in a week, you're back in two weeks. Like You've got to let that thing heal so he can – operate the proper mechanics of being a quarterback. So it's it certainly feels kind of bleak right now. I know that he's doubtful for the game and they're leaving it up till the end of the week. I highly doubt that unless some miraculous thing happened where he feels fine come Wednesday and can practice, he won't be playing Wednesday. But the smart thing to do right now is to go forward expecting that Tyson Bajant can pick up where he left off, a really mixed bag. In that, in his for in his NFL debut, regular season debut against the Vikings, but they have no choice but to you know compensate for the loss that they have at the position and try to move forward the best they can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and 
the one thing that I do want to see them do is to me hold Justin out of this game no matter what because I do know mm-hmm. Justin is a tough kid. Like he's not going to sit out a game if he can if he feels like he can go. We've seen him play mm-hmm. with cracked ribs. We've seen him play through tons of injuries, right? And unfortunately, mm-hmm. some of them sustained here with the Chicago Bears and I would like to see the leadership here say, "Listen, Sit this week. It's the Raiders. In theory, even though we're one in five, we should be able to get this game, especially with the issues that Jimmy Garoppolo is having. Uh, I don't know if he's been ruled out for the game yet, uh, but I mean, he's got a back injury. And the they, back, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it, it. Sounds like he avoided something pretty serious. Which you know, good for him. Good for the Raiders that it won't be a long term thing. But even his status is up in the air. So if you kind of get that feeling doing your research, if you're you know, hearing, you know, some rumblings across the league, or at least from their camp, that he might not play, then why? I just, it can't be based on anything else, but, like, that should even further emphasize the need to make sure that under no circumstances do you let Justin Fields practice this week or let him even consider putting a uniform on for this game. And and, and that's the thing for me. So now I guess we got to go down, right? We have to go down the rabbit hole of the Tyson Bajan storyline that is yet to come. I, to me, I'm going to be honest with you. Seeing Bajan go down the field on that last drive, it didn't give me so much uh, confidence in what Tyson can do. More so, it told me that, hey, if you took Luke, if you put Lucas Patrick in earlier and uh, the football was actually able to get snapped to a quarterback, that quarterback can then move you down the field. And the Bears ran the football very well in that game. But with Tyson Bajit now in, what kind of rope are we dealing with here with Justin Fields? Is this actually the boomer bust season for Justin? Or is this Justin's job the second he comes back in? Is that dependent on Tyson's play? I know a lot of people are going to immediately think of the Brock Purdy, Jimmy Garoppolo situation in San Francisco and Lo and behold, Mr. Irrelevant ends up being a really good quarterback and leads them to an undefeated record as a starter in the regular season and then gets them to the NFC Championship game. And who knows, had you know he not had that elbow injury or, I mean, regardless, he's the starter right Probably now. And people are going to project out, oh, if Tyson Bajan can do what, what Brock Purdy yeah. did, then that's going to be a story like no other. And I know that, you know, the parallels make sense, but – this is Justin Fields' job when he comes back. Now, barring like some sort of miraculous run they go on, like let's say let's say let's project this out and say they decide they want to put him on injured reserve for four, the minimum of four games just to let it heal up. Even if it doesn't require surgery, even if because if it requires surgery, he's done for the yeah. year. So that's a whole different set of circumstances. But let's say he only has to miss four games, and in those four games, Tyson Bagent leads them to wins over the Raiders over the Chargers, the Saints, and then the Lions. I think I have that stretch right. Of course, you have to think about, like, that that thought has to come to mind. It also depends how he's playing. Is it a game? Is it Are these games where he's a system quarterback, where he's helping them not lose, but he's not, like, the reason why? Like, in those games that we saw from Brock Purdy last year, I think it was starting with the Miami game, and then all of those wins they rattled off – he looked like more than just a quarterback in Kyle Shanahan's system. You saw something there to say, huh, this guy kind of looks like an NFL starter. Yeah. If Tyson Bajant has those moments, then he should be afforded the same sort of leeway there where, you know, why get off a winning horse? Like, I've been through this one other time, similar-ish circumstances. So the Vikings in 2017, Sam Bradford was the starting quarterback that year because remember when Teddy had his – catastrophic knee injury the year before they trade for Bradford um and then you know 17 they start out the season they win the game against the Saints and he goes down with a non-contact knee injury so Case Keenum ends up taking over the reins of the offense and starting week five in Chicago that year they rattled off eight straight wins so when Teddy Bridgewater was able to come off pup um the Vikings didn't get off a winning horse they kept Case Keenum they rode him all the way to the NFC championship game And that's never a situation that I think you want to be in because it really calls for some tough uh, personnel decisions, tough decisions on the front office and the coaching staff. But that's also best case scenario because it means that you're not getting off a winning horse at that point. So if 
that would be like the dream scenario for Tyson Bajan for the Chicago Bears, that this is a switch that, well, it, it stinks to see Justin Fields go down. If it leads them to a bunch of wins, then why would you get off a winning horse? But the caveat of that is Justin Fields is here in the third year of his rookie deal. This is a team that has to figure out if it's picking up his fifth-year option in May. And they're trying to give him every chance to succeed in this offense. Could things change that? Yeah, it would be dependent upon how Tyson Bajan plays, but I just can't realistically see a scenario where Justin Fields, no matter how much time he misses, doesn't end up coming back to his job um, after that. But as we foreshadow this to like next year and project it out, like he's got 11 games now, if we're taking away the Raiders game and all of this, to, um, you know, to figure out if he's the guy in Chicago and the time is ticking and I'm sure he feels that weight that if he has to miss a couple games due to injury, that costs him his opportunity to, to prove to this franchise that he is the answer. That's, that's my fear too, right? Because that pressure to me, I think that pressure is on Justin. That pressure mm-hmm. usually leads players to say, I'm going back out there. I'm going to get my job back. And that puts you in a bad situation sometimes. But the, the scenario to me, You're talking about Tyson probably having to be the pinnacle of efficiency at the quarterback position, right? Like that's what happened, right? When Trey Lance was out there and he ended up getting hurt and then it was Jimmy G and he ends up getting hurt. Brock Purdy came in and literally it wasn't that he looked like an NFL quarterback. It looked, he looked like one of the best NFL quarterbacks Mm -hmm. in the league. Like he was the pinnacle of efficiency. If Tyson Bajan does that, all right, I'm willing to have this conversation, but I don't look at what we saw from Justin in the last two games and then look at this game and go, oh, the quarterback was the issue. Now, I do believe Justin's the reason he got hurt. Standing back there, holding the football six Mm -hmm. seconds. You needed to get that ball away. I don't know if you got to hear uh, Tom Thayer on on the radio call just screaming at the top of his lungs before he gets sacked, throw it. Yeah, I mean, like, that. there is still that that's a part of the story, but... The biggest part mm-hmm. of the story on Sunday for me was how bad the center position play was. And we always look at the quarterback on that center to quarterback snap uh, scenario. But the center is just as important. And, and Cody Whitehair was getting Tyson Bajan killed in the beginning. And then Lucas Patrick kind of yeah. changes things for him. So for me, that's the storyline that I'm looking at from Sunday and saying, if Justin Fields is in there and they make the swap to Lucas Patrick, he probably goes down there and scores. And I guarantee you he can get that football to DJ Moore. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, there's a couple things in there that I want to talk about. Like number one, the logic didn't make a lot of sense for Matt Eberflus that they like, I get it in theory when he's talking about, well, we wanted to settle Tyson Bajant down, um, which is why they made the switch at center. But initially he said they wanted someone. I asked him, he said, we wanted someone with more experience playing center in there experience this year or experience in totality because in totality it's Cody Whitehair and it also doesn't make a lot of sense that you would make that switch for your backup quarterback and not have Lucas Patrick once he was cleared from concussion protocol in there with Justin Fields it doesn't feel fair that they would have made a decision to benefit one quarterback over the other and I'm not saying that they set him up for failure just kind of feels that you know they're trying to force this Cody Whitehair at center thing through yeah. because he's a very expensive player and they don't want him on the bench because he is, he's good in this. He's good when used, but like better at, as a guard as we've seen over the last two yeah. years than he is at center. So I, I find Matt Eberflus's logic on that. And just the way he explained it to be rather confusing because if, Like you guys said that you thought Cody Whitehair was a better center. So you made him move to center from left guard this year. And that's what led you to go get Nate Davis, um, you know, in in succession, the order, who knows. But like you made those moves because you thought, okay, well, I can upgrade the right guard position. I'm going to move Tevin over to left guard. Well, Cody's natural fit here. If we're going to keep him on the roster is going to be at center. So they did all of that. So clearly they thought he was good enough to play center at one point. Did he just miraculously get bad all of a sudden? No. But it's it's very clear to me, too, that last week played into why Lucas Patrick did not go in at center to start the game. Like, Cody Whitehair was snapping Justin Fields the ball in practice Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah. 
the last or second to last step that uh, Lucas Patrick needed to pass through for concussion protocol was on Friday and he got there and he was able to practice. So like he had one day in theory of being able to work with Justin Fields. Um, and obviously that's a Friday practice. That's kind of at walkthrough speed. They're doing more special team stuff anyways. It's shorter. So how much work did they actually get yeah. in? Like, I, I know that that's important. The center quarterback exchange and being able to practice that and get time on task in the reps throughout the week but very clearly, there were still issues between Justin Fields and Cody Whitehair. And I, I was just like really surprised by the way that they went about that um, in the benching. And you've got to wonder, realistically, is this a benching now that's going to see Cody Whitehair not in the lineup anymore because Tevin Jenkins is healthy and he looks good. This offensive line is better with him at left guard. And Lucas Patrick for what it's worth, um, was a better center. Yeah. I don't think any of the operation was great on Sunday. I don't think anybody does, but he was a better center than Cody Whitehair when Tyson Bajan was in there. And even, you know, even to the point that you made on, you know, going with the more experienced guy as far as one, that's just right. Like uh, <laughs> I've been on this all week. I was on this on Sunday as well. Don't lie to us on stuff. I can Google and figure out easily. Right. I was like, there's no way Lucas Patrick has snapped more footballs than Cody Whitehair has at center. I think like I watched him his rookie year. I know who Cody Whitehair is. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the biggest thing for me, when I looked at time with the quarterback, yes, in training camp, Cody Whitehair has more experience with Justin Fields. This sure. season, it's been Lucas Patrick. So at mm -hmm. every point of his debate on this, on yes, I'd rather have this because of the experience here. Why didn't you make that change with Justin was the first thing that I thought, because coming into the second half, there's no way you thought it was going to be better than what you saw in the first half. And the only reason that we didn't have about six fumbles is because Justin Fields is a heck of an athlete and played baseball and knows how to jump and catch a football. Like I saw Justin Fields high point the football more than I ever saw Chase Claypool do it while he was here. <laughs> and I shouldn't be talking talking about that. So I just, I, I look at Sunday to me when I, when I went back and watched it, I've been watching the all 22. I said this when I watched the game initially, it felt like our offensive coordinator, Luke Getze was like, I need to prove that this offense works. And we had 10 days to do it. This is the kind of offense I want to run. And this is going to work. Cause it looked to me like the Tampa game. I went back and watched it, and I was yeah. like, this looks very much like what we saw versus Tampa when they were blitzing. This looks very much like what we saw versus the Packers, not what we saw the last two games. And I get it. The blitz changes how you do it, but it shouldn't change. The same way Justin Fields said it, they're not going to change their identity because of what we did last week, we shouldn't have changed our identity <laughs> because well. we had 10 days off. I'll say it's not like they changed their identity. They just like ramped it up a ton yeah. for them to blitz on 71 point. What was it, like eight or nine, basically. nearly 72% of their dropbacks. That's crazy. Like, and I know that that's what the bears are going to come under fire for. How could you not possibly anticipate the blitz? Yeah. I know it's coming from all levels, but what about the protections? What about sliding the protections? Why on the very first play of the game did, did that unfold the way that it did for the offense? All of those things are very valid questions. Like, And even Matt Eberflus yesterday was talking about what broke down with the protections and that he felt like even on you – know, you can you can point out specific plays, whether it was Tyson Bajant's strip sack, that that was a protection issue, according to the head coach of the Bears. And then, of course, that first play of the game was a protection issue. Um, I think they came out empty, and like Justin Fields had – Kari Blazing game um, lined up out wide, and that was his hot read. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't know. Like, some of these things just, it, it feels like you're trying to get too cute and trying to get too creative when going back to the well. I know Eberflu said that he does not believe they need to simplify things for Tyson Bajant when he inevitably takes over for this Raiders game. How can you not? Yeah. How can you not scheme up some easy throws for your undrafted rookie quarterback who defense the Raiders defense is going to be teeing off on? Yeah. Like help yourself in these situations. Don't call three bubble screens back to back to back in the sec in the third quarter. And I don't know if it's trying to outsmart the other team, thinking that you might be able to catch them when they're not seeing it coming, but it's very clear that 
even against like not great defenses. Look, the Vikings are not world beaters, but they're not awful. They're not the Denver Broncos. So you're going to see more of that than you are like the Denver Broncos yeah. in that one game that they had week four. You've got to find ways to help your quarterback and help your offense, whether that's in max protection, whether that's, you know, the just like the protections overall. They just look, they, it looked like there was no adjustment and they just kept letting five, six man rushes get to Justin Fields, get to Tyson Bagent. I think the two of them had a 20 QBR combined, um, you know, on those plays. Like, that's just unacceptable when a lot of that stuff were the same looks that kept happening. Granted, the blitz is coming at you from all different levels. Yeah. I know that that's hard to anticipate, but they didn't have any answer for it. They had no counter for what ended up being the most aggressive game plan that Brian Flores has ever called as far in Minnesota, as far as the amount of pressure that he brought the bears. I, I Here's the, the part that irritates me the most too. To me, I think they did like the run game was dominating like the entire game. And I was just like, okay, let's keep going to this. Well, let's keep going with Deontay Foreman. It, even in that aspect of it, it felt like they were trying to call a game that, okay, we know we've got one running back left, and then we got Darrington Evans. Mm-hmm. If he goes down, we're really in trouble. We can't give him as much of a workload as we would give the other guys because we don't have as many. Like it just it, it, there was there was so many things on Sunday that I looked at offensively, and I was just like, mm-hmm. and it, it's. The tough part is, right, We we I, I talk about the coaches. I talk about the scheme. It's on the players, too. Stop shooting yourselves in the foot. Let's not false start, you know, to start off two drives. Let's not uh, get holding penalties that bring us back. Let's not go backwards because when you get – Lance has said this a million times. There is no play call for third and 15, third and 18. The play call is you try to get it back to third and seven or fourth, mm-hmm. whatever it is, right? So when you're starting off on the wrong foot, I really wanted. I just really want us to be clean. Clean that up. Get more disciplined. And I do think that. I mean, listen. To me, it starts at one position. And Matt Eberflus talked about this with Waddle and Sylvie. Um, you know, who's setting the protection? Who's telling guys what to do out there? It's your center position. Said it was Cody Whitehair. Then Lucas Patrick when he did come in. Is there a short-term solution at center on this roster? I like Lucas Patrick. Lucas Patrick is out every other play pretty much. Could we see some, at a minimum, some Doug Kramer? I don't know if he can play or not, but I know he plays center and he can snap. (laughs) you You need to bring that up because it's logic. And they brought him back. They activated his 21-day window. They would need to get a roster spot for him. But I asked Eberflus about this on Friday. Like, what is the benefit of having a pure center on your roster? Because typically, like we've seen with Cody Whitehair, he's played guard in his career, he's played center in his career. The same thing with Lucas Patrick. And that's kind of important. Like, you know, in order to have somebody who, like, their sole job is being a center – like that's probably something that could really benefit you. And I'm trying to find a quote right now. So like I asked him like about like what that would mean. And it's just a situation like where he's like, there's always a benefit to it. You're always trying to shuffle guys that play guard and their second job is center. So why not have somebody whose first job is center? And if you have a peer center in there, like, you don't need to be searching for, well, this guy can play guard. Can he also slide in here? Is it a right fit? Will this person snap the ball over the quarterback's head? I know that like Doug Kramer is not this like high end answer at at this, at the position, but my goodness at this point, because it's not like they're trying anybody else. Dan Feeney has experience at center. It's not like they've played him there um, or given him the reps. You got to try something else unless you are confident that Lucas Patrick will be your answer from the very jump of this Raiders game. And if he is, great. The problem last week was that Tyson Bajan is not running with the ones in practice. That's Justin Fields. So, like, he said when I asked him, who are you taking snaps from? You know, it wasn't any of those two guys. Sure, on game day, you're going to do that. because, But that's in the very limited action. Yeah, yeah. You might get, like, two to three reps maximum during pregame to get the ball snapped to you from either of those two, but he's probably running with, with uh, Doug Kramer for most of because he's running scout yeah. team and Doug Kramer was back at practice last week. I mean, there's a reason why it felt like Tyson Bajant was locking in on Tyler Scott um, in the second half and then locking in, 
you know, obviously I thought it was good that he actually got, he got DJ more involved than Justin Fields did. He targeted him six times in the second half. That's good. That's going to be something that's necessary if he has to play, likely has to play this weekend. But like, if you, you got to get this guy experience, which they will with the players that he might actually be playing with on game days and they're not guys further down the depth chart. So some of that factors into probably why the quarterback center step, center snap exchange was not as good as it could have been. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that that is the part to me where you want this kid to be as comfortable as possible. Now, again, I've seen Doug Kramer play in preseason. I don't know if he actually can block. I, I don't know what he can do against real guys that are actually trying to get past you and kill your quarterback. But I do think that the comfortability of it is the most important thing at this point. If he's comfortable with Doug Kramer, who's a pure center, like I, I don't get the, the, the mindset of like throw a guard in there, throw another guard in there, maybe a tackle. Like, well, it was their only option. Like I think it was their only option. They were, and of course, you can say, well, why didn't they draft that a player yeah. who can just be your pure center? Why did they? Why did they not sign somebody in free agency? A lot of this are like political decisions that they had to make. Cody Whitehair is the second highest cap hit on this team. When they were trying to figure out what their roster construction was going to look like in free agency and the targets they were going to go after, they had to find a place for him to fit. Otherwise, you know, and they, they weren't in the spot where they could have made him a cap casualty and just cut him because they didn't have enough talent elsewhere. So it's like, all right, well, we're going to keep this guy yeah. around because he's too talented to not have on the team. So let's figure out somewhere to play yeah. him. So that stuff factors in too, which you can't entirely blame them for. But now, this becomes a draft need. When we're starting to talk about 2024, this becomes a position. Unless you see Doug Kramer go in there and he becomes, you know, an answer, this becomes absolutely a position where it's like, all right, we're looking at the best interior offensive lineman in the draft. Who can play center? Because who's done who's played more center than they've played guard? That's important. You have to you have to cross-train guys because that's necessary with injuries, as we've seen. But I think that this is a lesson for them too in being able to find somebody who can do that job predominantly and do it well. Yeah, that's 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 the part that I think becomes irritating as well because it's just you've seen them put young guys in and young guys have moderate success. I I I'm not mad at most of the offensive line that we've seen when they're actually in there. When Nate Davis got practice in and was ready to go, Nate Davis could play. Right. Mm-hmm. D- Darnell Wright looks like a monster. Tevin Jenkins, when he's healthy, is a monster. Uh, you know, I, I just to me, it's just about giving guys the opportunity as, and being able to move off of it. Like you said, it's the politics of it. Being able to move off of the politics when the politics mm-hmm. prove wrong. And they've d- to me, they've done pretty well with that. Right. Like I always look at the P.J. Walker uh, experiment now. Like, yeah, he won. He still did not look good. He looked very bad against that San Francisco defense. So I just I, I'm I'm ready to see them make that next decision. I feel like the Bears are very reactive and not proactive with a lot of this stuff. And that's how you get guys hurt. Um let's keep this thing moving along. I mean, I, I will let's let's do this. Let me let me hit you with something that's a little more fun because we we also got to talk about Phil Snow, some storylines around here. Sure. Did you see the Chargers fan last night? What's going on out in uh, LA? Who is that lady? What's going like, on? Like they were zeroed in on here. That was an isolated shot uh, that somebody in the truck called for when they're seeing their big monitor and the big TV truck that's in the the loading dock at SoFi Stadium. They're like, man, I've got a great shot of a Chargers fan losing her ever-loving mind. Let's go to that. And they were on her for like five seconds. And now I'm seeing it all over social media. Like, who is this mystery Chargers fan? I didn't know they had fans. And I'm kidding. Like, I mean, it's just, but there were so many Cowboys fans there. Of course, Cowboys fans travel. We know that. But I've covered some games out there before uh, when I was in Minnesota and Chargers fans don't tend to represent um, even like I've covered two Chargers Vikings games, both at the soccer stadium that they were playing in for a year until SoFi got built. And then at SoFi majority of those games uh, had more purple in the crowd, but to see a Chargers fan like that go crazy. And yes, I know this was another moment for Brandon Staley and Justin Herbert to wonder, okay, like does this team actually have it? 
are they just like good, not great? Are they ever going to be great? Like, is this just like, it's just kind of is what it is. A quarterback who has great numbers, who plays through injury, who has a bunch of game winning, who has a bunch of like fourth quarter comebacks and game winning drives, but like, it doesn't really feel like it ever amounts to anything. That's kind of what this feels like. And through and through this apparent chargers fan is, um, I guess she's living. She's a, she's a plan, right? She's got to be a plan. There's no way. From the league, you she's say the league put that be. person there. She's got to be because it, here's the thing: she was losing her mind, and like when they would go to her, there was nothing happening. I was like, "What's she losing her mind at?" If there was, so nothing, you thought this was staged? Yeah, I'm like, if there was something happening on the field right now, they would be looking at the field, not at you. Why are they? What's happening right now? I don't know. I I I saw that last night, and I laughed really hard, and I also had. Uh, kind of the same thoughts as you with this Chargers team of just like they, you know what they? Here's the wild part. Don't they feel like the Raiders? Like they feel like the Raiders with Derek Carr. Like I feel like you should be way. better. You should have a better team. And then every time you see him play, you're like, no, it's every now and then fourth quarter comebacks. I like what I see there, but it's usually because you're losing because of something that. Your team did in the first half. I don't know. The Chargers are a weird team. It's they're two and three. The whole NFL is weird. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. And I think that, I mean, if you're talking about like late Raiders career, Derek Carr with all of those fourth quarter comebacks, I mean, he yeah. did it early on. I think it was like 2016. He was like top in the league uh, with fourth quarter game win comebacks, game winning drives. And then later on uh, before he uh, it parted ways with the franchise. But they're just they're a hard team to figure out because I can never tell. Are they actually good? Because they have a lot of really talented receivers. They've got a very talented running back in Austin Eckler, and they've got a yep. very talented um, front seven. I mean, Khalil Mack is you know just ripping through opponents right now. But like for what? What is this? What is this? I mean, what's the outcome here? It's your team that's two and three. And yeah, Dallas Dallas played them hard, but Dallas also got conservative as hell last yeah. night uh, with their offense. So. I can never gauge like they are the hardest team I think to figure out in the NFL, despite the tendencies we know we always bring up Brandon Staley in the fourth quarter, fourth down aggressiveness. Um, I, I can't tell you what this team is. I really can't. They are probably, if you had to ask me any team, like tell me what this team's record is at the end of the season, the chargers would be one I'd probably pass on. Cause I honestly don't know. Are they going to look like the team that showed up in Minnesota and, yeah. you know, like squeaked by with the win there. Is it going to look like the team that has the close loss like it did last night against the, um, the Dallas Cowboys? Like the Los Angeles Chargers are – Bears, you know, the Bears play there in two weeks. So I don't know if we have any gauge on, like, what this team actually is. And I'm trying to find in their schedule right now to see who they play um, before Chicago because there's – I don't know if there's any way to – uh, Chargers next week got the Chiefs five and one. Okay, Chiefs that's right. That's week seven. This was supposed to be the Chiefs. This is, I don't know. This was supposed to be the Chiefs like true test after the first couple weeks of the season. Like that, I don't know. Like it, the Dolphin, the Dolphin, or excuse me, the Dolphins game. Their defense was terrible. They gave up thirty six points. That's not great. But then they lose to the Titans on the road, and then they beat the Vikings, the Raiders, and they lose the Cow. I, I don't know what this team is, and I get it. Like. The NFL changes on a week-to-week basis in terms of like who's, you know, top of the world, who's bottom of the basement. But yeah. I don't know about this Chargers team. Uh, the one thing that has been consistent is the Bears have been uh, the bottom of the basement over the last few weeks. Anyway, I mean, we had one week yeah, on top. That's why true. I said I was like, I was like, enjoy this week, Bears fans. Like, let's enjoy this week versus the Commanders. We got hope. We're moving forward with. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but we did add some defensive help on this team. Um, Phil Snow's here to save the day. No? Okay. All right. Uh, what What's going on with the Phil Snow hire? I get it, right? Like, he's he's here to look ahead. He's just uh, an analyst. Uh, he's scouting. I, what, what's going on with the Phil Snow hire here? I'm, I'm not a uh, – I don't know if I'm not a fan of it. I just – I it didn't move it's me one to, way or the other. Yeah, it's hard to know because, I mean, this guy was – Phil Snow was the defensive coordinator of the Panthers last season. I think it was 2020 – like three seasons. So under he was on Matt rules staff yeah. and like, you know, they were a bottom bottom 15, bottom 20 defense last year. Like there's not like, you can't look at this and say, wow, we're so confident that this guy's coming in and to fix the defense. Like I don't, 
I don't want to understate his role, but I also don't want to like give any credence to this thing being what's going to turn the tide. I think this is going to help Matt Eberflus simplify his day-to-day tasks as a head coach and defensive coordinator all in yeah. one. Phil Snow is probably not going to be the determining factor between wins and losses, but if you can see what they did against Minnesota when they were in dime on all those third downs and they hold the Vikings to two of three, a 15% conversion rate on third down, like, okay, build on that. Like, that's great that that happened. And it felt like they were pressuring Kirk Cousins, um, you know, better than they had done the previous weeks for other quarterbacks and building on that performance they had in Washington. Having Phil Snow say, okay, I can look back at what the Bears did the previous week and let me see how this projects with the next team that they face. So he's going to be in the building. I don't know if we'll get a chance to talk to him. Usually if there's hires, you do. But he's in the senior defensive analyst role. He will be in the building Monday through Friday. He will not be a coach during game day. So he's really doing the advance work, the prep work um, for the defensive staff. Now, of course, they still have scouts. They still have a pro, uh, a pro staff that goes and does advances and it's not changing their front office structure, but this is somebody who's, I think, specifically here to help Matt Eberflus as he yeah. tries to game plan and go through different situations. We know that he's got, um, you know, analytics people that he relies on for, you know, game probability, like win probability in different situations. This, to me, is an extension of that. But Bears fans are going to look at this and say, hey, why did they keep doing business with Carolina? Like, can they just like stop doing that for a little bit? Because yeah, of course the DJ Moore trade is, is panned out great. That's working team, out. But it's like, there's other times where it's like, man, is there any other team that they can like get former players and staff members from? Um, but Phil Snow, remember we talked about this last week. If like why a lot of options that were thrown out there were not the names that made a whole ton of sense. Like if it's Lovely Smith, okay, we already shut the door on that one. Leslie Frazier might be coming for your job. Like, yeah. you know, he's they never said he's not going to get back into coaching. You bring somebody in who even if who knows if he even wanted a job like that. He might be comfortable sitting out for a year. But like there's a lot at play here and a lot of people who were not available. So this was somebody who was out of coaching for the time being who has experience at a number of different NFL teams. He was with the Lions for a while, and he's been all over the college ranks dating back to, like, the early 80s. So yeah. and he has experience in Carolina. I know Matt Eberflus, you know, talked a little bit about it yesterday. I'd love to know more about, like, what those ties are as far as, like, how they've been connected before. They've obviously never worked together on any staff. But if this ends up being what helps him simplify his routine during the week as far as what all he has to look at for somebody else to look at it and give him the information he needs then it's the right call it's just never going to you know draw headlines because yeah. it's not a sexy name and it's somebody who's been out of the game now for a couple months it, it is it was uh i think matt said it perfectly when you guys asked him kind of like well who is this guy what do you know about him well, it, it tells me everything when you start off about uh, what this guy is as a football coach. When you go, he's a great person. He's very humble, works well with others, and gives good advice. It's like, oh, okay. So he's your buddy. Like, this, this is somebody that you just talk to on the phone every now and then. And, 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 you and sometimes you need that on coaching staffs. Like I brought up the Dom Capers example last week of somebody who, you know, respectfully, like Dom is was part of the Packers organization. I think he was on that Super Bowl team in 2010. Like, yeah. but at some point, it's like, all right what do you do here? Like, are you actively helping this team win? Or is this just another example of cronyism where guys are just kept around because they have connections in the league and don't want to give the game up? That's a very real thing. And I'm not saying that that's the case here at all, but you know, we'll see. I just, I, if you're, if you're thinking that Phil Snow is going to be the exact, like the, the fix for this defense, I would find another hill to die on because there's just not, there's just not the I, infrastructure in play. I, I don't know. I think it would be. I would love to hear from that guy. Like, I want to hear that guy on the post post game show. You know, bringing in Phil Snow really fixed things for us on the at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it, I I will say this: the defense played better. The defense over, over the last few weeks is is they're getting themselves into form. Maybe there was something with uh, the whole Allen Williams situation and the uh, swap over that came from all of that that. You know, it took a couple of weeks for it to get back into place, but it looked good the last couple of weeks. Now, granted, 
you know, you're not sitting there talking about world beater offenses here, but I mean, I'll take what I can get at this point with this team. Uh, the Phil Snow storyline is one that to me was, I'm not going to lie. It was more funny than anything, but there are some good storylines going around the league right now. I think that you've mentioned, uh, you mentioned, right? Like what is the, what are the chargers to me? I'm on what is the league? Like there are so many storylines in this league right now. And there are question marks at every turn. Courtney, what are some of your favorite storylines? Um, Detroit being five and one, their best start since 2011. And the fact that I picked them to win the NFC North prior yeah. to the season, like it feels good to know that like at least what you saw and what you projected is panning out to be true. But it's a good story for a franchise, honestly, that deserves it. And I know there's going to be Bears fans who say, why would you talk kindly about the Lions? Well, like just being in the NFC North, like you've seen this team struggle for a long yeah. time. And the way that they've built their roster, whether it's the offensive line, one of the best, if not the best in the NFL, giving Jared Goff a second chance, like he is no longer the quarterback that he was in Sean McVay's system. Like this is At a quarterback all. who – can win without his top guys. I mean, they demolished the Panthers without Amon Ross St. Brown. And even last week when they, um, you know, he didn't have David Montgomery. I think David Montgomery exited with that, uh, I think it's a rib injury in the second yeah. quarter. Like they still were able to go to Tampa and win on the road. Their defense is out of control. Like Aaron Glenn really has that unit playing like a top 10 unit. And it's, it's good because it shows you if you are a franchise that has struggled for a long, long, long time, just like the Lions have, if you follow that blueprint, that can lead you to getting on track in a big way. So that to me is probably, you know, people are going to say, oh, it's among the surprise teams. It shouldn't have been a surprise team to anybody. They were built to do this and they've had really good drafts the last couple of years. And they've shown you, even though some of us, myself included, were skeptical of, you know, oh, you picked Jack Campbell there in the first uh, first round. And, oh, Jameer Gitt, well, look at those two. Look at those two and how many contributions they're getting from those two rookies. And Sam Laporta and all of the other players that they've drafted in the last couple of years under Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell. Like, that's a team that I think could very much become, like, America's team by the time the season's over. Because you're going to get a lot of people who are like, oh, the Lions are a great story. I'm getting behind them the second half of the season because they want to see a team like that which has a little bit of the little engine that could vibes, but that team could end up taking down the San Francisco 49ers or uh, Philadelphia Eagles or even the Cowboys. Yeah. And and I, the one thing that I love, you mentioned it there about, you know, how to build a team. Jared Goff is the, like, I love what he's become, but to me, he's the ancillary piece, right? Like I look at the mm -hmm. offensive line. I look at the defensive line. I look at how they've attacked that over the last couple of years. And I'm like, yeah, like, and then you got Jared Goff, who you just had to have be competent. Oh, by the way, he's turned himself into a better quarterback than I think. I think right now, I get it. He made a Super Bowl in uh, uh, L.A., right? Like all of, all of the storylines that went with that. But he's a way better quarterback now than he, than he okay. ever was in L.A. He reads. He's actually reading the defenses. It doesn't feel like he's just a system guy anymore. And I, wow. I like that more for Jared Goff than, than anything. Uh, one of my favorite storylines this year, though, is that uh, the, the Tua Kung Fu karate classes seem to work because he is uh, he, he's going down. He, he's still falling uh, gracefully, might I say, but. Seeing him evade defenses, I, I think that might be the part that people aren't looking at a lot with it. He looks a lot more poised in the pocket this season. Maybe, I mean, it helps when you have a slew of weapons. But seeing okay. Miami just kind of go through teams, seeing Miami be able to come back from, you know, being down 14 to nothing. Granted, it's against mm -hmm. the Panthers, but you but still, still went down 14 to nothing yeah. in the first quarter. You got to fight your way back and then just dominating that game by the end. Like I love the dolphin storyline this year. And I love the fact that Tua doing uh, uh karate classes in the, or what was it? It wasn't karate. Jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. Jiu-jitsu classes in the off season is uh, might be the thing that puts this team over the top. Yeah, no. And I mean, he, you can't say, oh, he's just a, a byproduct of Mike McDaniel's system. And he's got a lot of weapons around him. Like what he's doing, and you mentioned that Panthers game, like they're down 14 to zero. They need him. And 
he rattles off. I think he's like 21 of 31 passing and like, you know, throwing, throwing that game into the mix along with the 70 to 20 win that they had over Denver where he threw four touchdowns. Like he, I I read her MVP file for ESPN.com. Like he already has two signature moments this year that helped strengthen his MVP campaign. And it's again, a feel good story too. I mean, this guy was, I wouldn't say cast to the wayside by any stretch, but there was so much uncertainty and doubt about him going into this year. Could he stay healthy with the concussions become another issue? Like he took initiative. We were all clowning the jujitsu thing, wondering if it was actually going to help him. But like, it certainly has because you're right. He is still getting hit, but he's falling in a way and he's cut. Like he put muscle on, he's thicker, which helps him stay healthy, helps him like avoid body blows. And I, I'm 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 enjoying watching this high flying offense. Like the fact that they are getting comparisons to the greatest show on turf, that's no fluke. And remember when Tyreek Hill said that he wanted to be like a two thousand yard receiver? He's actually on pace to do it. I know that he'd have to continue this stretch. He'd done it for six games so far. Um, and he would have to like continue the usage rate he's at. So what is that? Like forty two catches, eight hundred and fourteen yards, six touchdowns yeah. through six games. Like I can see him. I can see him very much continuing on that trajectory, which would actually put him like around like 2,300 yards and 119 catches by the time it's all said and done. Teams will game plan for him every, every week. They will try their darnest, but he is a yak monster and he's so fast that sometimes like that's just stuff that you kind of have to tip your cap to and say, all right, we'll, we'll try to contain him. We won't be able to stop him. But though, that's another great one, that storyline. What's the team that has you scratching your head the most this season? The Bengals, um, you know, they're, they're starting to get back there. Are they a playoff team? I don't think so right now. So much of that can be blamed on the calf injury that Joe Burrow had to start the season or, you know, in the preseason. And then you can just tell how much his mobility affected this offense. But it just felt like they never found a way to scheme around that with Burrow still working through injury. And, I don't, I don't know if I truly understand why they didn't just put him on IR to start the season and bring him back after four games. You would probably, at worst, be two and three um, yeah. or whatever they are right now. So They're three like, and three right now. Three and three. Like That's a best-case scenario, and I believe that they're going on their bye this week too, so that gives them some more time. Like For them, like if they can get out of the bye week and they're like truly fully healthy another week where Joe Burrow – can like show he's progressing from it, that would be great. But um, that start, as we know in the AFC, could be could end up being kind of like the dagger for them since they already have three losses and we're not even at the halfway point. Mine, I'm th- the Chiefs to me, we have seen them now through seven or six weeks look like... Yeah, pedestrian. I mean, like, I, I don't even know what the word is for them. And and it's and they're winning, right? They're five and one on the season, but your only dominant game is against us. And you just played the Denver Broncos. You barely squeak out a win versus them. Like to me, I I've I've been sitting here questioning this now is, is did the Chiefs get too cocky? One, it looks like a Matt Nagy offense. So you put Matt Nagy in there. Uh does that does that hinder what this mm-hmm. offense can do? And two they just basically say, we'll win with whoever we put out there. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And you've let Tyree Kill go. You let Juju go. You've let a lot of names walk out of that door. And now you got Kadarius Tony is arguably your best wide receiver. Yeah, That's a scary it, place to be. Like, the offense hasn't played its best yet, yet Mahomes is still at the top of the league in terms <laughs> of, you know, all of his numbers. His completion percentage over ex- expected is, like, the highest in the league. It's a career high for him. So, like, he's hitting the throws he needs to make. It's just not this, wow, dominant wins by the Kansas City Chiefs outside of a game where he was pulled for the second half because they were up by so much against the Bears. But – sneakily they have the second best scoring defense in the NFL, which is wild when you think about it. Cause it's like, all right, like we saw them, you know, struggle in moments. They've kept a lot of teams in games like the New York jets. And then of course that, that stat line you hear about how, you know, the jets have faced two, three of the top MVP finishers from last season, whether it's Josh Allen, uh, Jalen hurts, uh, Patrick Mahomes, and those guys have thrown multiple interceptions, more interceptions than they've thrown touchdowns in those situations. But 
I think like they well, they lost that game against Detroit by one point. It was 21-20. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not like they're like that loss was such an anomaly the way it was for the Jets and the Bills when Josh Allen threw three interceptions that game. The interception numbers feel like they're higher for Mahomes, but he's also getting pressured more when he doesn't have Travis Kelsey on the field, which yeah. has been frequent this year because Kelsey's been hurt. So um, I would venture to guess they'll get the, they have, they're tied for the best record in the AFC right now. They have a two time MVP quarterback. I think they'll be fine, but yeah. it's nice. It's nice to see that they're not just like running away with this. Like we might've expected. Yeah, it, it feels like they're more human this season all of a sudden. And it, I yeah, guess that kind of opens up so. the, it kind of opens up the argument for who's going to win the AFC. But I mean, by the end of this week, we know, right? Like it'll be the chiefs in the super bowl with Andy Reid and a cheeseburger in his hand, just ready to ready to go out there and win it. Let's uh, who you got for MVP right now. We're, we're, Pretty much just about halfway through this season. Who you feeling in the, is leading the MVP race right now? So I'm on a panel at ESPN.com with 12, 11 others. And like my MVP right now is Tua because, mm. it, and I honestly don't think it's close right now because it's like Tua Mahomes, Josh Allen, maybe, maybe Christian mm. McCaffrey can sneak in there. But like Tua's playing at a level where he needs to get the respect put on him. And not just that you're a byproduct of having really good weapons and a great offense. Because the same can be said about Patrick Mahomes wep- um, in terms of like offense. Obviously, the weapons. He's gotten yeah. that before in the past, though. And we've never said, oh, well, Patrick Mahomes is the byproduct of having Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. We've never said that. Or Andy Reid. Same with Josh Allen. But like Tua deserves that because there have been moments this season where his team has needed him. I will keep going back to that Panthers game to come through and help them eke out a win like yeah. those are the moments I think that define an MVP season the most and and he has several of those already yeah uh, I I probably agree with you that feels wrong to say though but I do I I know I probably agree with you it, it we're does six, we're six weeks into this and I get it that it changes we've already had three different players lead uh the mvp odds at caesars like yeah. in six weeks you've had it change three different times three different quarterbacks josh allen has had it patrick mahomes has had it and now two has had it so i hate to say it it's going to be a quarterback again because mccaffrey's now it's hurt who knows if he's going to miss this yeah. game like it, it's just it, it is what it is i wish that they would have ended up like you know making another award uh i mean there's there's offensive um you know Offensive Rookie of the Year, Offensive Player of the Year, all of they those things They need to have matter, an but... offensive and defensive MVP. Like, yeah. it, at this point, because you, be. you're slighting the best. Like, I get it, right? This, it's Defensive Player of the Year, but, like, I guess that is the defensive MVP. I don't know. It, it doesn't I – don't, I don't like it. I don't like that nobody else can win the MVP outside of a quarterback. I'll throw a sneaky one in there for you, though. <sighs> it feels gross to say as well. Give me Jared Goff. Jared Goff should be getting some yeah. MVP votes here. He's been elite, 69% completion percentage, uh, 1,600 yards on the season already. I mean, like, 5-1 and one in Detroit. Yeah, he's at the top of the league. Among among all the quarterback stats, you're going to find Jared Goff's name in the top five for a majority of them. And touchdown to intercession ratio, when you've got 11-3, to three, give me that mm-hmm. any day, man. Let me get Jared Goff in there for a little MVP conversation. But, hey, we want to know how you guys feel, man. Who's your MVP? Let us know in the comments below. Appreciate you guys for showing love. Always appreciate Courtney for joining the show. As always, it's your boy, Pat the Designer, back at it again. Hit that like button. Subscribe to the page. Leave the five-star review. You know what to do. Chicago Bears podcast. Peace.